From the Daily Mail newsroom, I'm Amelia Hempel, and this is Scoop, a Mail Plus podumentary, bringing you the remarkable stories behind the Mail's biggest investigations. Who is the middleman? Who is the broker? Who is dealing these illegal kidneys? Straight from the journalists who got the scoop. My heart was pounding and I just slammed the laptop shut. Coming up, an undercover sting, a five-foot gangster and a shocking web of medical malpractice. According to new NHS guidance, as many as 42,000 deaths from acute kidney injury could be prevented every year. This mother sold one of her kidneys for $1,000. Investigations editor Tom Kelly was used to crime stories. He'd been on the newsbeat for over a decade. But when a former source called him with a tip-off, this story felt different. It was an old contact from Belgium. He said he had a friend or associate who'd travelled to India and with the help of a man from Nepal had bought a kidney on the black market because he was so desperate and he couldn't wait in Belgium. So this man also said that the man who was arranging the illegal kidney transplants was doing a thriving trade with Britons. It sounded like this wasn't a one-off incident and the story quickly became more sinister. I started making some calls both in Britain and abroad. In Britain I found out that because of massive NHS shortages of donors. A lot of people are are desperate to get organ transplants because if they don't, in time they will die. And the NHS have dealt with about 400 people over the last decade or so who've had complications after coming back from these transplants. I also had some calls into Nepal. Various people there, NGOs, were telling me that there is a, a big problem with people selling their kidneys effectively in the black market and then having complications afterwards. So you could see there was clearly a problem going on so that the, the initial tip sounded like it had legs. How sophisticated did this operation seem to you at that time? The fact that it was international and there were people across the globe who were flying all the way out there to get legal kidneys showed that it seemed a highly organised and sophisticated operation. To break the law over a number of jurisdictions, bear in mind it was, you know, at least two European countries, it was Nepal and India, meant there must have been a lot of organisation to, to make it work. What were you thinking at this stage? I was obviously intrigued by what I heard uh, and was very keen to, to find out more. Who is the middleman? Who is the broker? Who is dealing these uh, illegal kidneys? How does the whole system work? Let's take a step back for a second. Why are people so desperate for kidney transplants in the first place? So the main causes of kidney failure are type 2 diabetes, obesity and high blood pressure. Uh, most of which are on the rise because of our unhealthy lifestyles, eating too much sugar, drinking too much, all the rest of it. Uh, And that means that the number of donors can't keep up with the number of people desperate for a new kidney. In the UK, there are currently 5,000 people on NHS waiting lists to get a new kidney. One patient dies every day during the average three-year wait, and the demand is only getting higher. So some people make the risky decision to take matters into their own hands. If you have a kidney transplant done properly through the NHS or any recognised health authority, it should be fine. But you have to be monitored both before and crucially afterwards. Most of the donors would just be abandoned almost immediately and and left, you know, in, in horrific situations and left to die. Why would someone ever want to give up a kidney for a stranger? I was told by NGOs that because huge poverty in Nepal, there are a lot of people who are just desperate to sell their their kidneys and and will do 
anything because of the money they are promised, whether they get it or not is a different matter, but the money they were promised could be life-changing amount. Where many see this practice as a way out of poverty, benefiting both rich locals and foreigners. For many years... What was so shocking about the story was that it exploits desperation on both sides. As the people who are so short of money, they're prepared to sell their own kidney to make some cash. On the other hand, there are people who are so desperate for a new kidney, they fear they're going to die, they're prepared to buy one illegally on the black market. And of course, in the middle of that, you have just someone exploiting this misery on both sides and counting his cash all the way. So at this stage, you had a tip-off about this trafficking ring in Nepal and a bit of research. How did you go about reporting the story and then gathering all the different pieces? We had a name of the the middleman, which is obviously a very good start. So I spoke to a fixer in Nepal and got him working on it and doing some research into the background of this man and tried to get as much information we could ahead of then booking a flight out to Kathmandu and trying to arrange a meeting for ourselves. Tom and his fixer, who was a local journalist from Kathmandu, were going to have to go undercover. But first, they needed a plausible story of their own. We had to find a a scenario where I would be able to ask a lot of journalist-type questions to this man. So we came up with an idea. The fixer would claim that his brother desperately needed a kidney transplant and had previously tried to get one, but it had gone wrong and they'd been ripped off. So I was going to be a business partner of the fixer's father and I'd been sent along to check that this time the deal went properly and that there was no shenanigans and he wasn't going to rip us off. So did you have anything to back this up? I mean, what if they Googled you? Well, luckily, I've got a very common name, which comes in, comes in useful. <laughs> Tom Kelly, not many of those about. And also, my fixer, we had, a, we had a, a picture of an old university friend of his looking rather uh, worse for wear. And so when the middleman asked any questions, we could show him this picture and say, this is my brother. And that was going to be the sick brother who needed the kidney. That was going to be the sick brother who needed the kidney, yes. Were you scared? Yes, of course. You're going into an unknown thing, a man running a a major criminal enterprise, and you just don't know how it's going to turn out. You've got to get your story as watertight as you can, but there can always be unexpected questions that can catch you out. You don't know what checks he's doing behind your back. You're both sussing each other out and hoping for the best. So you finally managed to persuade your editor to let you go undercover. You had a couple of James Bond-style gadgets, didn't you? We wanted to obviously secretly film him while it was going on. Uh, so we had a, had a shirt which had a camera in it, which you have to set up in advance, and also a mobile phone case which had a camera, but the camera, as it were, at the front of the case, so you could lay it down on a table or even on your lap, and it could film the, r- the room or the person in front of you. There's very strict rules surrounding secret filming and subterfuge and you have to be able to justify a number of things including it's in the public interest and there's no other way of getting this information so i had to have a lot of talks and emails back and forth with our lawyers before they finally gave the go-ahead so what are the challenges around using hidden cameras once you start recording you've got no idea as the conversation goes on if the recording is working properly you can't obviously stop and check while it's ongoing and you obviously can't ask someone to repeat something because you've only got one chance to make it work it could be going really well it seems to be going really well but then afterwards you check your recording for whatever reason it's jammed or you had slightly the wrong angle on your shirt and you didn't catch the person talking and all that that one chance is just blown and it's it's it's, it's all gone because presumably, as the father's business partner, you can't be seen to be taking too many notes, can you? No, exactly. I mean, I mean, if you took too many notes, it would, it would really give the game away. It would look very odd. You could maybe take one or two notes, but you can't take a, a verbatim note, which is another reason why you, you are justified in using secret filming. 
So they contacted Prem Bajgai, the kingpin of the organ trafficking operation, and set up a meeting to discuss a potential transplant. Tom got on a flight to Nepal and booked into a cheap local guesthouse on the outskirts of Kathmandu. What was the city like when you arrived? It's got a wonderfully exotic name, so you, you never quite know what to expect, but it's full of colours, smells and lovely, but, but all a bit Celtic and hard to find your way around. Also very polluted, it's right down in a valley. I think most tourists who go to Nepal just stay for a, a day or two maximum in Kathmandu and then head off into the far clearer and lovelier hills. Obviously we were there in Kathmandu for the duration, a real working city. Nepal is landlocked by India and China, it's home to Mount Everest and attracts tourists and climbers from all over the world. But the country's ranked by Transparency International as one of the most corrupt in South Asia, with a quarter of the population living below the poverty line, surviving on around 50 cents a day. Poverty makes people desperate, so desperate they're prepared to, to sell their kidney. There's been a civil war there, and more recently an earthquake in 2015. Nepal was already a country living on edge, but now it's been gripped by fear once again. We could still see the impact of the earthquake. There were temples collapsed if you walk around the town, buildings down. When you drove anywhere, a lot of roads still being rebuilt. The awful scale of Nepal's suffering is being laid bare. The bright orange of dozens of shelters amid the rubble. So the whole country, even though it was a few years on, was still really struggling to, to, to get over that earthquake. And people still have work as a result of it. And that means people will do anything to get money, even selling their own kidney. Tell me about your meeting with Prem Bajkai. What did you know about him at this stage? He was a figure of mystery. We knew he must have some very high-level contacts to be able to make his operation work. We presume doctors, lawyers, maybe customs officials, border staff, other medics, but we just didn't know, really, who was the man behind this. So you arranged to meet him at your guest house. What was it like when he turned up? Was he suspicious of your story? He was sceptical at first. He turned up only five foot high, dressed all in black, but walks with this incredible swagger and he has these two heavies with him at all time. And he had initially this sort of black mask on his face, which he then removed when he talked. But it all added to this mysterious and rather sinister figure. So you could tell at the start, Prem just wanted to hear our stories, wanted to sound us out. Didn't say much initially, just just listened to us. I think when he realised there was money to be made, he began to warm up. So the two of you were there bargaining for this potential kidney. What other information did you get? He started to outline how the process would work. He had a lot of forgers and lawyers on his illicit payroll. And depending on the ethnicity of the person receiving the kidney, he would either make them, if they were white or black, he would make them married to the donor, which therefore they're allowed to donate the kidney. Or if the recipient was South Asian, he'd make them the sibling or the forgers would sort of create documents to make them appear to be the sibling. The person buying the kidney would be flown directly to India, where he had contacts in a number of hospitals, and the donor, the person selling the kidney, he would then bring down to India to do the operation. And is donating and receiving a kidney a complicated operation? It's quite complicated, yes. They have to be side by side, and the person donating the kidney has their kidney removed, obviously, and then put straight into the recipient, but they actually put it on top of the recipient's effectively dud kidney to try and convince the body that it's almost the same kidney so the body won't reject him. And how did he find these doctors who were doing the operations? Well he'd moved around from hospital to hospital. Effectively what he said was the doctors that he used knew that it was illegal but because 
Prem could provide these false documents, these forged IDs and so on and so forth, they could sort of have a plausible deniability and say, oh, I thought it was all above board. But he had, had initially done it in, he said, in Nepal, then people found out there, then he'd gone to Delhi. And by the time we got to him, he, was, he had some doctors on the payroll in Calcutta in India. And they would obviously be cut in on the deal too. Yes, that they would take a, a chunk of the money for, for doing these operations. You know. And so what was the supposed price breakdown? He was charging £30,000 per kidney minimum. All money had to go to Prem, but he explained that a certain amount of money, a few thousand pounds, would go to the forgers and the lawyers. A fair bit would go to the doctors, again, a similar amount, of about five or £6,000. He claimed of the rest of it, it would be split pretty evenly between himself and the, the donor, the person selling their kidney. Whether that was true, obviously, we didn't know. He also told us that women's kidneys cost £6,000 more because he had to pay a sweetener to the woman's husband to keep them on side. Wow, silence money. Tom still needed more details. He wanted to visit Prem Bajgai's home to get his address, and he needed testimony from some donors, but he didn't want to blow his cover. Prem was demanding a lot of money up front, so playing this sceptical businessman, I said, well, uh, I want to I know you're telling the truth. I want to see your home. I want to meet some of these donors. I want to find out some more details before we commit to such a, such a large amount of money. And I think he, by then, he was beginning to see the pound signs and, and, and agreed to it. So the next day, Prem turned up again, this time with two potential donors and some shocking revelations. He said because of the poverty in Nepal, he could get donors, and he just clicked his fingers and said, like that. He said if he wanted to, he could get another thousand donors without any problem at all. And he was quite candid about the fact that the only reason they did it, the only reason they sold the kidney was because they were so poor, they were desperate for money. When we questioned whether this was legal, he said, no problem at all, just pay off the policeman. And he sort of rubbed his hands together in a symbol of money. This part was particularly galling. While doing their background checks, Tom and his fixer had found out that Prem had already served jail time for trafficking organs, underpaying and misleading the donors, and then deserting them when complications arose. So my fixer had found a cutting, an old-style newspaper cutting, in one of the local papers describing how Prem had previously been jailed about five years earlier for organ trafficking, and he was described as the kidney kingpin in Nepal. But he'd been released two years prior to us being there and had immediately gone back and started selling kidneys again. He had no qualms about returning to his life of crime the minute he walked out of jail. It made us anxious, obviously, because he had a lot of police on the payroll and other high officials. So you were quite worried about, well, who can we trust when we're covering this story? Who can we talk to? Is anyone going to blow our cover? And who were the donors that he brought along? Very sad story. There was a young mother with two children. She'd been working as a labourer, lost her job, and desperate to sell a kidney just to be able to support children, pay for their food. Similarly, the guy who'd been a, a, a bus conductor, a young guy, had very young twins, and same situation, lost his job and was just desperate to get any money at all. And they looked very, very nervous, very uncertain. It was really quite upsetting to see. Did it feel like they knew what they were committing to? No. Not at all. At one point, when Prem was explaining how it worked, he sort of held up his hand and said, oh, it's, I've got five fingers, if I just chop one off, I just bandage up and carry on. That's just what donated kidneys like. But even the sight of him doing that, the donors just looked absolutely aghast at the prospect. I don't think they had any idea what it actually entailed. It was very clear they were being exploited and taken advantage of. He also brought along a third woman who he'd said through him had sold her kidney to a British man just a few months earlier, and she sort of 
came and displayed this huge scar that she had. He was obviously trying to convince us that everything would be right for these donors, but just looking at their reactions, they didn't look at all sure. Black market organ trafficking is a billion-dollar industry. Prem Bajgai had made himself a middleman in this murky underworld and was clearly cashing in on the vulnerability of hundreds of poor and sick people. So at this point, did you have enough information to write the story? We had enough to tell the story about Prem, but we wanted to find out more about what happened to the donors after he discarded them. We'd heard stories about people suffering from HIV and hepatitis because of infections. And it's clearly a highly unregulated uh, business with a lot of dangers. So we wanted to go and get to the bottom of the, uh, the, the, the human victims of this, this appalling trade. But they were in for an unexpected surprise when they went over to Prem's house the next day. Well, it was down at Warren and some back streets in Kathmandu. But when he got there, it was a, it was a pleasant place, certainly by Kathmandu standards, clearly quite a middle-class house. He'd obviously done well from his dodgy trading. There was kids running around, local music blowing on the TV. It was all you know, quite congenial if, it, if you didn't know what was going on. He offered us some tea, gave us a little tour of the house. At the top had lovely views over Kathmandu. And then he sat us down and introduced us to his wife. Did she give you any other information? we just asked sort of casually and making small talk so you know how did you two meet and he said oh well we met you know about 15 years ago and uh i actually sold her kidney what and then, and then subsequently proposed to her and no. now we have two children yes <laughs> nothing says romance like selling your other half's kidney <laughs> absolutely yes it's, it's, <laughs> and who took the money him or her he took the money yes i think he always takes the money wow so were they very open about talking about the kidney trade Yes, his wife was clearly knew exactly what was going on. And Prem even told a story about how he'd first got into the trade, where years earlier he tried to sell his own kidney, being told he was too small. But then in the course of doing that, he realised there was big money to be made in this, in this business, and that's how he got into it. So not, never sold his own kidney, but wanted to sell other people's. Well, absolutely, yeah, including his own wife. So I think that says everything you need to know about him, really. The next part of the investigation was the most nerve-wracking, getting the police involved. To get more information on Prem, we wanted to speak to the detective who'd first led the investigation into Prem about five years earlier and succeeded in getting him jailed. But of course, there was an anxiety because we knew from Prem's own words and from the way this operation worked that he was paying off policemen, bribing them. So there was a a real fear that in going to speak to this policeman, we could expose ourselves and he could be on Prem's payroll and we'd be in big trouble. So what did you do? Took the plunge and went for it. Didn't explain we'd spoken to Prem initially. We just said that we wanted to find out about organ trafficking and we heard he'd been investigating it. But it hadn't been easy for him to bring Prem to justice, had it? He was very passionate about this subject and had himself fought a lot of battles with figures of authority in Nepal to get Prem jailed first time round. He was swinging against the tide to try and bring this trade to light and get people prosecuted for breaking the law and exploiting this misery. The police officer gave them the details of a young man who lived a few hours' drive away in the outskirts of Kathmandu. His name was Niroz Sunar. When he was approached by Prem, he was just 16 and had dropped out of school with big dreams of making it as a pop star. Prem promised him £1,000, which would have been enough for him to pay for a music video and cut his first album and sort of set him on the road to stardom, as he believed back then. But instead... Niroz received just £200 and ended up in a wheelchair for life. After this operation, Prem had given this very small amount of money and then abandoned him. He subsequently developed a a complication from the surgery, fell into a coma, and that's how he was left paralysed. 
It was a tragic situation. He was living in a hillside shack, just corrugated iron and bare brick. His parents had to go away to earn money to support him. So his younger brother was looking after him. He was in a very, very bleak situation. And he knew he'd be there like this pretty much till the day he died because of what Prem had done to him. So how did he react when he heard that Prem was out of jail and back at it again? He was horrified and just was really upset to think that other people could be going through the same same situation with him and knowing that they too would be tricked by Prem the same way he had. There was a really forlorn um, guitar just sitting in the corner and it was a sort of reminder of the promise and the optimism and hope he'd once had when he agreed to sell his kidney. Oh, it's such a sad situation. What was that like, meeting Niroz? It really brought home the kind of human consequences of this story that this, you know, small guy was actually inflicting misery on scores, hundreds, possibly thousands of people and doing it with absolutely no scruples at all. And do you think the people who were receiving kidneys knew this backstory? No, I don't think they had any idea because Prem was adamant when he spoke to us that, oh, you know, they get half the money or half the money after the bribe has been paid and that they do very well out of it and this is a life-changing amount and this will, and, and, and also he, he made the point that they get looked after afterwards, which of course is a complete nonsense that we discovered. Selling a kidney is illegal in India and Nepal and tighter restrictions were recently brought in. But Prem was able to get around those. He clearly had high-level connections. Were there any moments that you thought you'd broken your cover? There's always a danger, especially once you've got most of the story in the bag, that you just get a bit too relaxed, and that certainly happened to me. A couple of days after we'd had the meetings with Prem, which had all been prearranged and he'd turned up on time, I was sitting in the guest house reviewing the, the footage we'd taken him on my laptop, the secret footage we filmed of him on my laptop, and I suddenly looked up, and there was Prem standing there with his two bodyguards facing me. What? It was an absolute heart-stopping moment. I suddenly <laughs> started shaking, my heart was pounding, and I just slammed the, the laptop shut and sort of got up and shook his hand. Did and tried to see? Thankfully, he hadn't seen it because I had my back to the wall with the, the, with the laptop facing me. But if he'd come in a different angle or if I'd just not noticed him, he would have seen. And I shuddered to think what happened next. Back in England, Tom got to work on writing the story. So I spoke to the NHS department that deals with kidney transplants and the after effect, and they confirmed that this was a, a huge and growing problem. They'd had hundreds of people who needed aftercare after returning from buying kidneys illegally abroad with all sorts of complications. One doctor we spoke to had just very recently had a patient who'd gone deaf. And most tragically, we actually found one woman whose brother had died after going abroad to buy a, a kidney again he went to a, an area where the treatment was so bad he got an infection and died a little while after coming back to the UK. The NHS and other kidney charities are really keen to raise awareness of what a risk this is. No matter how desperate you are for a new kidney, going abroad to buy one illegally is never a solution because you have such a high chance of getting a serious infection and either dying or having a life-changing injury. The story went to press on the 21st of January 2019. The big reveal was titled... NHS picks up the bill as black market kidney swaps abroad end in disaster. It was accompanied by the explosive undercover footage that Tom had taken of Prem and the donors. What kind of reactions did you get from the article? In the UK, the NHS started circulating a very hard-hitting leaflet around all kidney centres in, in the health service with a sort of 
road traffic sign style stop and then very starkly outlining all the dangers of going abroad to get a illegal kidney transplant. And what about in Nepal? Was it enough to get Prem arrested again? It was enough to start a new police investigation because hitherto they'd been unaware that Prem had gone back to his old life of crime almost immediately after leaving jail and also the international nature of the crime now. The detective and other authorities there started investigating, although, of course, as the detective who previously got him jailed had had warned, there are a lot of difficulties in leading an investigation about someone so well-connected in Nepal. There were also a lot of responses from readers and and others in the UK who wrote to say that they had been unaware of the danger of doing this, and some of them had been considering actually going abroad to to get a kidney transplant because they're so desperate, but having read this, they realised it just wasn't worth the risk. And what were your thoughts after writing the story? Had your opinions changed? It was surprising how simple it was to run such a sophisticated operation. Prem Bajgai had no digital footprint and had built this whole kidney empire off word of mouth and yet was running this huge international operation where he had people flying over from all around the world. He was paying off doctors, paying off police, paying off lawyers and making a large amount of money all from, you know, a simple home in Kathmandu. And what advice do you have for other journalists going undercover for investigations? Keep your backstory as close to the truth as possible so you're not inventing too much. You do have to have a clear backstory because it is easy to get caught out with a precise question or just in small talk. In our case, we had a, a very nervous moment when Prem asked a very precise question about the person who was supposedly going to be receiving the kidney in, in, in our story and what stage of dialysis he got and some quite precise medical information. And of course, we were a bit stumped. We managed to kind of smooth it along and start asking him questions back that got him off it. But it was an anxious moment and it makes you realise just how easy it is to be rumbled in these situations. Well, that's it from us this week on Scoop a male plus podumentary taking an insider look at the art of journalism investigations. I'm Amelia Hempel. You can follow Tom Kelly on Twitter at Tom Reporter for more of his stories. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. Listener.